Uh, no, I can't understand why it was a bombshell. You don't see, you don't see, you don't, you don't see the issue here? Hold on. Because it gives us assurance that we're going to have access to it to play games when we want to play games. Hello and welcome to Race to the Bottom, your socially aware football podcast that aims to explore the ever-widening expanse between the world we live in and the game we love. This is episode one and we're your hosts, Joe Harmon and Mark Norman. And so we open with uh, a deep dive perhaps into the most poignant subject I think that, that looks to affect all of us involved in football from grassroots up to the international level, which stands to be the sale of our, our national stadium, Wembley Stadium, to Shahid Khan. Those who aren't aware, Shahid Khan is the owner of two very large clubs, Jacksonville Jaguars in the US and Fulham FC, who are newly promoted to the Premier League. I should add that Jacksonville Jaguars are a American football team, and for the last approximately four years, they have been playing one or two of their games per season at Wembley and it's over the course of this time that conversations between I can only assume Martin Glenn who is the CEO of the FA, uh, Greg Clark who is the chairman and Shahid Khan culminated in a proposal for the possible sale of Wembley Stadium. Figures that have been talked about are £600 million with a possible £400 million coming from Club Wembley but that's something that uh, I do dispute. I'm not quite sure how Club Wembley profits have been broken down. We'll go over that in in due course. But to start with, uh, Wembley had very difficult beginnings with its build. Several reports were commissioned by the Secretary of State for the Digital Culture, Media and Sport arm of the government, who at that time was the late Tessa Jowell. These reports really looked at the difficulties of financing such a large project. And it's important for us to remember here that Wembley received significant funding from public sectors, including in that was £120 million from Sport England, which is still the largest grant given by Sport England. £21 million was given by the London Development Agency and the DCMS gave £20 million. So in total, public funding for the Wembley project was £161 million. Where it starts to get complicated is with the financing aspects of a company called Multiplex, who were the construction company who gained the tendering of Wembley Stadium. That means they gained the right to actually build the stadium through slightly complex means. At the time of the tendering process, the chairman of WNSL was Ken Bates, uh, previous chairman of Leeds United and Chelsea Football Club. And it's come to light that Ken Bates had hired Multiplex to do renovations on Stamford Bridge, Chelsea's football stadium, previous to the tendering contract that they got for the building of Wembley Football Stadium. One of the things that came to light in the 2002 report by Patrick Carter to Tessa Jowell is that the tendering process was attributed to Multiplex on more of what might be considered a gentleman's agreement as opposed to the official processes where you would offer the opportunity to bid for the rights to build Wembley Stadium. That didn't happen and it was raised by a company called Tropus Limited who in turn 
raise their grievances with the DCMS, which in turn resulted in Patrick Carter looking to build his report. He had previously written a report in 2001. He had a revised report in 2002 because there was a lot of questions over whether the public funding of 161 million total, especially the 20 million from the government, should be actioned without more clarity over the building costs. Now, all of the reports that I reference here will be available on the website in the article section and on the podcast. But to go back to the the points at hand, what is evident from all the reports and from the outset is that the FA would be under tremendous strain to repay the money that it has borrowed and to generate a profit. And I think that's why immediately after the building of Wembley Stadium, it became very apparent that the NFL franchises from America would be in some way incorporated into the Wembley calendar. I think it was a very obvious revenue source that was necessary in order for any sort of profit margin to be considered. And I think things have escalated from there. And we perhaps now find ourselves in a situation where the long-term financial implications, although heavily indicated throughout uh, the reports that are previously mentioned, are now very apparent. We only have to have a look at the the current financial statements that are available online, and they give you a bit of an eye-opener to where the repayment aspect of, of the three public funding grants are at. So, If you remember at the start, I said that the London Development Agency, £21 million, Sport England, £120, DCMS, £20 million. Well, uh, the financial statements of WNSL are available to view online up until 2013. And what is evident is that very small inroads seem to be being made into the the repayment of those three bodies. So 2009 is when first access uh, I've been able to make for the financial records. Sport England uh, has an outstanding payment of £77 million, DCMS £18 million and the London Development Agency £19 million. If we fast forward to 2013, still looking at uh, the WNSL's financial records, Sport England uh, is now owed £76 million, DCMS £16 million and the LDA, the London Development Agency, £17 million. So yes, the money has been paid back, but it is still a significantly large amount of debt that on top of the obvious borrowing and bank loans that had to be incurred in order for the property to be built in the first place. And although large portions of this grant-based debt will be amortised over time, which means paid back over a long period of time in relation to the asset itself, what is evident is that there is still a significant amount of money that needs to be both owed and payments to be remade with regards to Wembley Stadium. Now, a great deal has been made about the opportunity for a significant grassroots investment of we're talking approximately around a billion pound. That has been made up of 600 million pound of repayment money. And on top of that, 400 million pound, which is somehow involved with the Club Wembley money that will still be generated through the fixtures 
of the Charity Shield, the playoffs, the SFA Cup, England internationals that will be played at Wembley. However, this is where the uh, picture starts to get a bit blurry for me. Club Wembley over approximately 10-year period seems to generate around £50 million a year. My wondering is that will that fluctuate now with regards to Shahid Khan taking ownership of, of Wembley and then being able to dictate like he said in his interview and and at the start of uh, the show, there was a small clip that he would like the Jacksonville Jaguars to play when he wishes to do so. There's two parts of an argument with regards to the England national team, who is the, the, the perhaps the biggest selling point of Wembley, is that should we lose the home of Wembley and we take the England national team on tour around England, which many have raised to be a wonderful idea. I think it'd be quite nice as well. They could come all the way down to Plymouth. That'd be lovely. But if they do that, then Club Wembley will not generate the same amount of revenue that it currently generates. Either they continue playing at Wembley and we don't get the benefit of them touring around the country and popping up at places like St. James's Park and Anfield and Ellen Road and Home Park and places such as that. Or they do stay at Wembley and Club Wembley is then able to generate something along the lines of, of the £50 million mark. Now, how this culminates in £400 million, I'm not quite so sure whether they are clubbing together that £50 million over a number of years is one thing. Um, it may be that. It may be involved sponsorship as well. But overall, the intent to sell and and use a massive figure like £1 billion is something that, yes, it can be very, very misleading. I think we've been misled uh, previously over very large figures being promised for certain institutes. But what should be asked here is, was that the intention all along? One of the things that I've always had my eye drawn to is uh, the FA's 2014 Football Commission report, then actioned by uh, the previous chairman, Greg Dyke. However, current FA chairman Greg Clark was on the board at the time. And the FA Commission proposed a series of hubs to be built throughout the 30 major cities in England. That was an intent to build them by 2020. And as of yet, uh, there is one up and running in Sheffield. These football hubs were meant to be 3G pitches, increased participation all year round. One of the things that stood out for me at the time of reading it back in 2014 was that the funding requirements were approximately 10 lines long. Uh, The scale of funding required to deliver this radical new approach is well beyond the means of the FA. The latest working assumptions for funding are that completing phase one across all 30 cities will cost £230 million in capital spent over five years, nearly £50 million a year. Football's contribution to funding for phase one of the Sheffield pilot has been committed by the FA and its Football Foundation partners, and discussions are underway about longer-term national partnership approach. Now, what that says to me is that in 2014, they had a great idea to implement and roll out 30 hubs throughout the country, which, yes, in theory is a fantastic idea. But what's very clear from Greg Dyke's statement is that the funding aspect of it was something that they didn't really have a concrete platform to work from. And could it be that with the sale of Wembley, it's actually been implemented to offset the fact that if they don't get some serious funding and and £230 million was spoke about at the time, goodness knows whether that's increased. One can only imagine perhaps it has. But we are way behind on the 30 hub promise. Currently, 
one has been completed with others in the pipeline. I believe Liverpool is another proposed site which they're beginning work. But where is this money coming from? And once Wembley Stadium has been sold, what does that mean for the extended investment of grassroots football? Not to be cynical, yes, £600 million is a significant amount. Yes, it stands to be able to benefit perhaps the next generation of footballers. But if the FA is for all, then we also have to ask in what sense is it forever because the generation after need to be able to inherit a suitable environment in which for them to pursue and enjoy football. And whether it's £600 million or a billion pound, when that is divided up throughout the counties into these hubs, into contracts for employment, what will be left for the grassroots community over the extended period of time is something that we haven't quite got the answers to and we mustn't be blinded by this million pound that seems to be dangled in front of us. We need people throughout the football community, throughout the journalist community who can ask the questions to the likes of Martin Glenn and Greg Clark and ask for transparency, forensic transparency to see where this money is going and how viable is this as a long-term investment, not an adrenaline hit investment in which 30 years down the line we're looking at the same problems, but a long-term viable strategy. That would be my question to put to the FA and one hopes that in time these questions will be raised to them. And so our final piece for today's episode is a a tale of two sterlings. We're going to open with an audio. It's quite difficult to listen to. It involves a NBA player, Sterling Brown from the Milwaukee Bucks. And it is a police audio recording of a situation that arose in uh, late January of 2018. I think it's important for the context of the conversation to continue that we hear this. So here it is. How you doing? Got a driver's license? Where's that? Where's your driver's license? Take your hands out of your pocket now. I got stuff in my hand. So what you heard there was a tasering of an American basketball athlete by the name of Sterling Brown in January, a parking lot in Milwaukee. That was only a minute and a half clip. Uh, There is about an eight minute clip that, that oversees the entire video footage of the police officers, plural, four of them in the end. Um, and how they escalated the situation which began as a parking fine on all accounts Sterling Brown was parked in in the wrong place either over two parking bays or a disabled parking bay but very clearly as you can hear by, by certain parts of the audio this takes on a really ugly turn it makes for very uncomfortable listening and it goes from the possibility of a parking ticket to Sterling Brown then being told to get on the ground by numerous officers, then being tasered whilst he's on the ground, then being placed in handcuffs, and then finally uh, being released without charge. Now, this 
is unfortunately a very common occurrence in the US, uh, especially during this kind of period that we live in in our lives. And what I'm drawn parallel to in the football world is this week we have a situation where on the weekend a Raheem Sterling of Man City and England squad used his social media site, Instagram, to share that he had got a new tattoo. And as a result of that tattoo, he's been demonized by several newspapers, well-known celebrities, campaigners, and all of these people have decided to have their say on on Raheem Sterling's tattoo. Now, for those of you who don't know, Raheem Sterling has a, a tattoo of an M16 assault rifle on the side of his right leg. Whether he had a tattoo of Wiley Coyote, whoever, is really, in my opinion, irrelevant. I think what we have to really focus on here is, once again, this English footballer has found himself at the centre of attention of media outlets, celebrities, and now there seems to be several anti-gun campaigns. So let's first acknowledge the fact that the two athletes that we're looking at here, it's no surprise, are both black athletes. They're both young black sportsmen. Sterling Brown of uh, the Milwaukee Bucks is not the first black athlete in the US, especially over a current period of time, to experience aggressive, racially biased policing from police forces. You have Michael Brown in Las Vegas. You've had Colin Kaepernick take a knee in the NFL. You've had several players over a period of time come out and speak. And Sterling Brown, in his statement, which I'll read part of shortly, acknowledges the fact that he as a sportsman has a platform to raise awareness for this and that the Milwaukee Police Department have something of a track record of their treatment of black Americans, not just athletes, but black Americans who have died in situations where they found themselves confronted by the Milwaukee Police Department. And what is massively refreshing with Sterling Brown and with a lot of the American athletes is their willingness to face what is clearly racist habitual behavior head on and confront it in the means that they do. And Sterling Brown's statement, which reads, my experience in January with the Milwaukee Police Department was wrong and shouldn't happen to anybody. What should have been a simple parking ticket turned into an attempt at police intimidation, followed by the unlawful use of physical force, including being handcuffed and tasered, then unlawfully booked. This experience with the Milwaukee Police Department has forced me to stand up and tell my story so I can prevent these injustices from happening further in the future. Now, the situation with Raheem Sterling, yes, is different. Many might be saying, well, why are we looking at something that happened in the US with regards to the police force? What is evident in the UK is that when it comes to Raheem Sterling, he has been the subject over many years of incredibly biased, negative reporting. And I believe it's tantamount to racism. And I think what we need to do is not pander. And I think The Guardian perhaps is the only newspaper that has called it for what it is. And there's an interesting reply today from the Sun's head of PR in The Guardian letters 
I believe his name is Andy Sylvester. It says, race was not a factor in the slightest in our decision to cover the story. We would have run the same story had the tattoo been on Jordan Henderson's arm or Harry Kane's back. And we expect the reaction of campaigners would have been exactly the same. As a role for young people in the context of gang violence epidemic, it is hardly a surprise that those on the ground in violence afflicted communities reacted so angrily. To focus on the perceived racism of the tabloid press is to willfully miss the entire point of the story. Okay, Andy, uh, what is the entire point of the story then? Because you track history otherwise in your reporting of Raheem Sterling would indicate that perhaps you do have a problem with him. We have Obscene Raheem, article a couple of months back. Baloney, another front page article of Raheem Sterling. Raheem shoots himself in the foot was this, this week's beauty. There's a myriad, oh, Prem Rat of the Caribbean in which Raheem Sterling is accused of cheating on his girlfriend with two other girls. So there's no denying that The Sun has a history of this type of reporting for Raheem Sterling. And I think we need to accept the fact that it is racist reporting. And I feel here's an opportunity to perhaps highlight to those people who are tremendously aggrieved by Raheem's tattoo other ways where they could invest their energy. Um, one of the things that is very apparent to me, I work as a teaching assistant, is uh, is the game Fortnite. I'm sure many people, if you uh, interact with children at all, currently play Fortnite. Fortnite's premise is an online platform where you can shoot people and do dances. That's pretty much it from what I understand. Have a look at that. Get campaigning on that. I highlight the game Fortnite not because I believe it is in any way conducive to gun violence. I am an advocate of computer games and violence existing within computer games, having grown up playing a multitude of gun-based computer games. I've never touched a gun, never fired a gun. And so my point really is to raise the fact that there are anti-gun campaigners who are very angry with Raheem Sterling and I don't see that same levels of anger being exercised towards a online phenomenon that has a far wider reaching consumer base than that perhaps of Raheem Sterling. The other factor that I find might be worth investing your time in, people like Piers Morgan seem to be absolutely horrified that an individual could have a weapon tattooed on his body. Piers, I've got news for you. Um, the Army, the Navy, I think the Air Force, not too sure about the Air Force, but having many Army friends, having family who have all worked in the Army and the Navy, many of them have tattoos of knives on their arms, Piers. Many, many, many have many, many tattoos of knives, guns on their body. That's something that has been almost a British Institute over the years. So where is the uproar over our armed forces projecting gang violence? Where's that condemnation? I'm not sure it's present anywhere, but it's something to give a bit of time to. I don't think it will, however, because the narrative doesn't seem to fit. It's far better to target a rich black athlete and then frame him in a way that infers he is an advocate of gun violence. One of the more disturbing parts of the online Sun article is if you scroll all the way down the bottom, it gives you, yes, an M16 fact file. 
which is just what you want. Variants of the US-made M16 rifle have been used in most major conflicts since the Vietnam War in 1964. It also tells you that it has a range of 2.2 miles and can fire up to 950 rounds a minute. Wonderful information. And the caption just below the picture, it has an image of an M16 rifle. It's very interesting as it says an M16 assault rifle carried by US soldiers. Just to note, the M16 assault rifle is also used by the British Army, the SAS specifically. So I wonder why the Sun didn't report that. I think the positive outcomes from this story is that the majority of people have come out in defense of, of Raheem Sterling, including the FA, which is a positive thing to say towards the FA. My stance on it would be that perhaps next time this happens, Raheem Sterling takes a note out of Sterling Brown's book and calls a spade a spade. And perhaps instead of being this wonderfully polite young man that he is, he very much appears to be, that he can still be wonderfully polite and call racist media reporting exactly what it is. And that would send a message. And I think there's coming a time, there's coming a tipping point where athletes, be it black athletes, be it BAME athletes, come out and identify media outlets like The Sun, like The Daily Mail, and individuals in the in the celebrity world and, and Twitter sphere and call them out on what fundamentally is a racist viewpoint, racist act. And it will be interesting to see the landscape when that happens. Well, that's the end of our first episode for Race to the Bottom. As you might be aware, there's only been one voice this week. Mark, my colleague and good friend, has been finishing off his dissertation. So he will be here next month where we record again and look at two other topics to, uh, to unpick. All that's left is for me to say a massive thank you to Josh Blackwell for all the artwork, design work, to direct you to racetothebottom.net, which is our website where you can listen to the podcast and read articles by us. Obviously, that will grow bigger in time. And to highlight the importance of social media currency of Twitter followers and Facebook likes. Please add us. It's massively important. Thanks very much for listening.